The following is meant for information purposes only. Before taking any action on anything being discussed, consult your medical doctor. Welcome to Heart Health with board-certified cardiologist and doctor of internal medicine, Dr. Franklin Weefald. Heart Health is a local call-in health show designed to educate and inform you of the most up-to-date information for not only maintaining a healthy heart, but a healthy body. Call us with your health questions at 919-890-9783. And that number again, 919-860-9783. Good afternoon. I'm Dave Alexander, along with Dr. Franklin Weefald. Good afternoon, sir. Hey, hey, hey. How was the beach? The beach is very good. You don't <laughs> seem oh, sunburned. No, no. I took your advice. I, I used SPF that SPF. 35 or what? I was up to 50. 50 is good. We had the the stuff that the baby was using. I just used it on me. Well, did you hear the bad news about it? What's that? <laughs> Apparently, what? some people are saying that the high power sunscreens are uh, contributing to the death of coral reefs, yeah. especially in... Um, the Great Coral Reef, which is the Great Barrier Reef, excuse me, which right. is off Australia. Who would knew? How did you, I mean, you know, you got to protect yourself from sun cancer. I didn't have a problem for that. I'm too scared of sharks. <laughs> well, so I, thankfully I never around went North the water. Carolina, there's no barrier reef, so, right. but I don't know. But anyway, on I today's still show, recommend it. On today's show, if you want to talk about sunscreen, we can do that. Uh, also, patent medicines. You know, that's an old phrase, but it's true yeah. that our medicines are patented. Patented. And and because they are, some drug companies act in a way that may not be what yeah. you would expect. I'm not sure, yeah. yeah. Also, um, uh, vaccines, energy drinks. There was something came out while we were away last week about it, people doing research study on 25 cups of coffee. I mean, come on. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It might be healthy for you or it might not kill you. What do you think? Well, who are you going to you gonna hang around with? Other yeah. people who've had 25 I, I cups think, of I coffee. I think there, there is an important thing to say about energy drinks, but we'll, yeah. we'll, say, uh, we'll say that in a little bit. And the New York Times came out with a story. And I'm telling you, you don't want your company mm-hmm. on the front page of the New York Times. Uh, yeah, you don't want to be a doctor on the front page of the New York Times either. Because it's is, never going to be good. No, no. And they, what they do is they put pulled quotes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Quotations from the article in big letters on the website. And one of them is, horrible complications are happening. Yeah. And we don't know why. And we have to be honest with the patients. This is about our own UNC hospitals. Yeah, it's very, it's very <laughs> scary. I, I urge everybody. We'll, t- we'll talk. We'll get into it. But I mean. The, you want to do it now? Yeah, yeah. if you don't All right, mind. So here's the story. I, th- I urge everybody to uh, look at this New York Times article. It's from May 30th, 2019. And the screaming headline that I'm seeing in front of me, it's a nightmare right now. Right. Who knows how bad it is, but it's bad enough that the pediatric cardiologists, so they're the people who are like me, but they see babies and young kids, Yeah. and their situation is about babies that are born with holes in the heart, uh, valves that are messed up. They're born that way. Yeah. And there are several conditions that can be repaired surgically, and they have to be done pretty quickly. Well, UNC like Duke, like East Carolina, like Wake Forest, pride themselves in a pediatric cardiac surgery program. It's a halo effect, you know. 
if you're a great hospital, you do pediatric surgery, right? pediatric cardiac surgery. Now, I think one of the problems becomes, and people should know this too, that the more surgeries somebody does, the better they are at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's practice makes better. Yeah. I would never say perfect because surgery can never be perfect. Well, here's the problem is that the pediatric cardiologist at UNC got to the point where they felt there were too many complications. They would see their kids go in. Um, their kids, by that I mean their patients. And pediatric cardiologists are very, very um, nice guys, and they consider their patients, quote, their kids, quote, yeah. quote. But they weren't doing well, and they were having complications, some of them having deaths, um, having problems after surgery. So they all got together, and the Times recorded these meetings um, and said, look, uh, we're not so sure that we would send our kids, our own kids, our biological children to this program. And they started referring him to Duke, referring him to East Carolina instead of to their own program. Well, the thing that's kind of disturbing to me is that the head of some department, the head of the hospital, got them all together and said, yeah, I hear you. So use your own conscience. But if you don't refer them here, we're not going to have enough revenue. We may have to cut jobs. You may have to have your salary cut. Yeah. So it's a two-edged sword for these guys. It's uh, do they vote their conscience or do they vote their pocketbook? And, you know, the Times does delve into the complication rate, and it is higher than most programs. They do about a third of the number of surgeries that the experts in pediatric cardiac surgery say is necessary to keep um, a good program through experience and keeping your skills up. So there are a lot of issues. Now, they also say that there have been some very difficult cases recently, the high-risk cases that did well. Right. Um, but I, this is a tough problem. And I'm not going to make, I'm not going to come down on either side right now. I think the disturbing thing is that the, the pediatric cardiologist at UNC, and this is Chapel Hill, mm-hmm. um, are of the opinion that they wouldn't send their own kids to their own surgery program for fear of a complication or a bad outcome. Now, I've always been asked when I refer somebody, for a procedure, either be neurosurgery, be cardiac surgery. Mm-hmm. I would say most patients look me in the eye and say, is this guy good? And I say, well, I don't think I'd send him to you if he wasn't good. Yeah. But then the fundamental question comes up, would you send your own family mother there? And I remember yeah. once I said, yeah, I'd send my mother there. The guy looked at me and says, well, do you like your mom? <laughs> and so um, what happens when you are part of a program? So for example, all of the cardiologists now, except for me, mm-hmm. are owned by a hospital system. And this happened in 2010 when President Obama got the um, Affordable Care Act, we will call Obamacare. One of the things that he did to save money was he got a group of um, quote-unquote experts to get together and say, who can we cut to save money? Well, the cardiologists, of course were cut 40% in some of their procedures in one day. So December 31st, she got X dollars for a procedure. January 1st, 2010, you got 40% less. Cardiologists hit the panic button because so many of them were living the high life off of these procedures. Sure. And they all pulled the ripcord and joined hospitals. And 
So then they became employees, and they're paid on the on the basis of how much they do. Some of them, um, it's been accused uh, that they get paid too much. I'm not going to comment on that. Um, so then you have to ask yourself, if you're referring me to this person at your hospital, are you doing it because it benefits your hospital, or are you doing it because it's the best surgeon? Now, I can tell you right now, there are some of the best surgeons that I utilize who are not employed by hospitals. And I do know that some of the hospital employees who are cardiologists or primary care physicians refer to them. Yeah. So it's not a, a 100% thing. But I think the lesson for patients out there, for people who are listening, is that when your doctor, whom you trust, tells you that they want to refer you to a certain person, don't hesitate to ask them, does this surgeon have good outcomes? Okay, and it's, it, you can discover this. For example, if you're going to have carotid surgery, if you're okay. going to have your artery to your neck opened up, you have to find a surgeon who has a low um, rate of complication because if it's not low, then it's better for you to do nothing. Okay, the risk of stroke from a very significant cholesterol blockage in the artery to your brain is 5% in one year. Um, there are many surgeons whose risk of stroke at the time of surgery is greater than that. So why would you have the surgery by that guy? Okay. Now, the guy that I use, and I'm going to give him a shout-out, his name is Abdul Chaudhry, has a very low, and I'm not going to quote the number because I probably would get it wrong, but all yeah. I can tell you is it's very low. It's way much lower than the um, chance of having a stroke if you don't do surgery. So therefore, it's important to do. Okay. Now, I've sent him 200 patients who haven't had a single one have a stroke. Now, there is another surgeon in the area, catchment area where I practice. And quite frankly, I've discouraged people from seeing him because his stroke rate at the time of surgery is higher than the stroke rate if you did nothing. And now what if I were yeah. employed by his employer? You know? Oh yeah, you'd, well, I'm, I mean, what, you know, I mean, what would I you be, have to? Yeah. Well, I think that's illegal. And I wish yeah. hope there's a lawyer listening. I don't think they can tell you who to refer to. Now, right. I don't know what the contracts say. I don't know what anything else say when you sign up. You know, you're going to support the system, blah, right. blah, blah, blah. But I can't send somebody to another surgeon or another doctor if I can't be 100% sure that they are going to do the best for my patients and are going to have the lowest rates of complications. And so... You got to ask your doctor when you're being referred, and and it, don't think yeah. that they're, if a doctor gets mad when you ask this question, probably time to get a new doctor because the doctor has to be in your best interest and has to know that you may have qualms, you may have doubts, and you want to ask about them. Yeah. You know? If I recommend a procedure, for example, a patient asks me, number one, is it absolutely necessary? Number two, who does it benefit? Does it benefit me, the patient, or does it benefit you, the doctor? And believe right. me, there are a lot of tests done today that benefit the doctor and not the patient. So you have to ask them, okay, yeah. what are the decisions that you're going to make based on this test? And it's, so it's testing, it's referrals. Are you referring me to somebody you would send your mom to 
and do you like your mom? Um, Would you send your kid to this pediatric cardiac surgeon? Would you send your wife to this OBGYN? And so I think that um, one of the things that this article that I urge everybody to search out and read. Now, I'm not a big fan of the New York Times, uh, and I'm not going to tell you that I think this article is 100% true because I have my doubts about the New York Times. They are a biased institution. But it raises the kind of questions about what physicians think, um, what the stresses are, among physicians who are owned by hospital organizations in terms right. of supporting their hospital program, um, even if they don't necessarily trust the people that they're sending their patients to. And what do you say if you're a hospital um, administrator to a physician who is continually referring patients out? Can you punish them? Can you threaten them? And apparently the times... Has, is saying that these sorts of things are happening. Now, I'd like to get a follow-up to this article and find out what's really going on. Yeah. Um, but it is disturbing, and I think it's close to home. Yep. I think there may be listeners whose kids have been operated upon there, and if they have and they're doing well, then great. Yeah. Um, but, and I'm not saying don't use the hospital. I'm not saying don't use the pediatric cardiac surgery program. I think the lesson in all of this is ask your doctor. Right. Is this guy you're sending me to someone you would send your family to? What are his complication rates? Um, has how many? Oh, how many of these procedures has he done? For example, there was um, a situation another hospital I'm familiar with, very complicated cardiac surgery uh, uh, on a infant called the Fontan procedure for something called the hypoplastic left heart. The left heart is not developed, so they have to do a special procedure and reroute all the plumbing. And so they asked the program, well, your surgeon, is he experienced? And he said, well, he's done one of them. Yeah. The answer to that is to go to another hospital. You don't want a yeah. cardiac surgeon who has done a complicated procedure once yeah. to do your procedure. And I think that is um, indisputable, yeah. especially when Duke is, is in the area Sure. Johns Hopkins is close by. Right. And one of the things that the article talks about is that everybody wants a pediatric cardiac surgery program if you're a major medical center. Maybe the answer is fewer of these programs and um, agreements among major medical centers to have referrals and, and um, concentrated areas of pediatric cardiac surgery so they can do 500 procedures a year mm -hmm. and be good at it because it's not just the surgeon you know the anesthesiologist is critical he has to he or she has to have experience with the procedure and the anesthesia um, it's the intensive care unit nurses uh, mm -hmm. who are by the way some of my favorite people so um very very thought stimulating article all right we can follow up on that if you want us to, by calling 919-860-9783, or we can talk about uh, whatever issues you're having right now, whatever questions you have right now, the waiting room is empty. We'll you know, do it. We'll, we'll do it. We'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. Also, a, uh, a pharmaceutical company had some good success, they thought, with an Alzheimer medication 
But then they didn't follow it. They didn't tell anybody it was good for Alzheimer's. They didn't. Why wouldn't they? We'll tell you in a minute. 919-860-9783 is the line, the telephone number, at Heart Health News Radio 680 WPTF. Now, back to Heart Health with Dr. Franklin Weefald on News Radio 680 WPTF. And Ron Red Carroll in Henderson. Carroll, thank you very much for calling us up at 919-860-9783. You are on with Dr. Weefald. Hey, Carol. Hi, thanks for having me. Of I course. I have a question that's not about the heart. Okay. I have a severe herniation of the spinal lumbar. I went to a doctor who's very well respected and an excellent surgeon in the Raleigh-Durham area. Okay. And uh, I also have the blood clot gene, the Factor V Leiden or Leiden. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, Factor V Leiden. Factor V Leiden. Yeah. And also a number eight something. I don't know what the number eight what is. But um, I went to see him and I he told me he had great statistics with the surgery and, you know, not to worry and that sort of thing. And I told him about the blood clot gene and he said, I will, you know, call you back. We'll call, call you back and talk to you about that. So they called me back and said that they wanted to speak to me about my surgery. So I went to the hospital last week and they said that I had a, um, uh, they wanted to give me heparin. He talked to the hematologist and they wanted to give me heparin six hours before the surgery and six hours afterwards. And there was a chance that I could bleed to death on the operating table. Now, I, of course, that scared me to death. And, um, I, my back is, I can't even get up. It takes me an hour and a half in the morning to get up. I can't sleep in a regular bed. I have to sleep on the couch so that I can back my upper back against it to stand up. And, you know, I'm just in a terrible situation with this herniation. And, but I don't, you know, that's scary when a doctor tells you you could bleed to death on the operating well, table. Yeah. I'm, I, let me just, let me give some background to the listeners. Factor five Leiden is a protein that is necessary to control how much you clot. And when you don't have that protein, you can clot in situations where people who have it don't clot. And so factor V Leiden is something that a cardiologist looks for, uh, that deficiency, when somebody has a heart attack at a young age, and it can happen. Or if you have blood clots, that can happen. So what we generally do... For someone who needs surgery, and I tell you, most of the time, my patients with factor V Leiden deficiency are on a blood thinner or anticoagulant full time because I capture them when they've had a clot. Anyway, um, we generally, what we try to do to get three pe- people through surgery is uh, what you have described, is to give heparin um, six hours before the surgery so there's less of a risk of clotting. Now, heparin generally lasts in the body about 12 hours. So you'll have a little bit of heparin in your system and basically enough to keep you from overclotting during surgery. And then they'll give you another dose after the surgery. Now, when somebody says you have a risk of bleeding to death, I think what they're trying to say, and again, I'm not your doctor, I'm not in in the situation that you're in, but if somebody were to tell me that their doctor said that, I don't think they're trying to tell you that you will bleed to death. I think what they're trying to tell you 
is that there are some things that are unpredictable about how an individual is going to react to heparin. Now, here's the good news. If they find that a patient is bleeding too much and they're on heparin, there is a way to reverse it. It's called protamine. And I'm sure that the doctors who are going to be involved in your case know this because it's a very common thing. I think what they're trying to say in those situations is that some things can go wrong. And nowadays, um, I think people who are doctors try to protect themselves from lawsuits by giving the worst-case scenarios. Now, I've been told that I don't give the worst-case scenario enough. Um, But I listen, I'm 30 30 years into practicing, so it was back in the day when we didn't even think about saying these things. But here's what I'm going to tell you. From what you've told me, your doctors are pretty smart. And from what you told me, you're pretty miserable. Um, Mm. And so, you know, there's something that we doctors refer to as a risk-benefit analysis. Okay, there is a risk for you that is higher, say, than David Alexander's risk for having the surgery. Um, But everybody's different. And I think that my feeling in this would be if you like your doctors and you know your doctors are going to tell you the truth, and it sounds like you're in a good situation, if you know your doctors are smart, and it sounds like they are Mm -hmm. because they've gone, you know, the whole nine yards with your particular clinical condition, then you have to ask yourself, is the risk, which I think is pretty small for you, I can't give you a percentage, but I think the risk you're going to bleed to death is very, very low. I mean, very low. And so you say to yourself, I want to feel better. I want to take the risk. That's your decision. Sure. Well, I appreciate you elaborating on that. When I lived in New York, they, um, I had my second blood clot during a surgery. And, um, Carol, I'm going to, I'm going to put you on hold for just a moment. And the reason is our news uh, department wants to tell us the news and we're back in just a moment. Now back to heart health with Dr. Franklin Weefald on news radio, 680 WPTF. Where the telephone number is 919-860-9783. And we were speaking with Carol, or Dr. Weefald was. Hey, uh, Carol. Hey, Carol. Hi. I was just going to say, um, I am, I did have a second clot when I lived in New York City. And, where was your um, clot at? It was the same, both clots were in the same place behind the right knee. Oh, yeah. A deep venous thrombosis. How long were you on a blood thinner after that? Um, I, they put a filter in. Uh-huh. Did they take the it out? The clot wouldn't travel to my lungs yeah. like the first one did. Did they take it out? They did. Yeah, good. See, you had good doctors. They said that they could be a lot of more complications. Oh, boy. Have I seen them? Have I seen them? They're terrible. So you had a good doctor. Right. I've heard yeah. bad things about that. Yeah. You sound great, though. Well, thank you. You've eased my mind a bit because yeah. that's always scary, something scary to hear. Oh, absolutely. If somebody told me I could bleed to death, I think I'd be worried. <laughs> thank you so much. Hey, you have a great weekend. And thank you, you Carol. All right. Bye bye. Telephone number here is 919-860-9783. You are listening to Heart Health, although the topics range far beyond 
Well, you health. know, I, as I always say, why do you pra- they people? Why do you practice internal medicine? Because it all affects the heart, right? Sure. I mean, it does. Rheumatoid arthritis, um, you know, uh, diabetes, high blood pressure. It all comes down to the heart. There is a story that you you have in front of you about a a, a pharmaceutical company mm-hmm. that I'll had say some, it. It's Pfizer. It, it's yeah. it had some good news about a medicine they already marketed. Yeah. And many of many of the listeners probably take it. There's a lot of rheumatoid arthritis treated with a drug called Enbrel, and you know who yeah. uses it? I think is Phil Mickelson. Yes. Yeah, he's got psoriatic arthritis. The way these medicines work, these injectable meds for rheumatoid arthritis, is that they reduce the amount of inflammation. They're, they reduce the autoimmunity. Well, there's always been a theory that Alzheimer's, the plaques that form, the, the neurofibrillary tangles of beta amyloid. Yeah, that's What that stuff. means is these proteins are being deposited in your nerve cells that just clog up the works. Well, people have thought for a long time it's problem with chronic inflammation. Um, and so some researchers went back, and this is preliminary data, uh, data that needs to be proven. But they looked at insurance uh, claims, and they found out that people who had taken Enbrel had a 64% less chance of claiming on their insurance policies Alzheimer's. Now, that's staggering. Yeah. There are very few medications that can reduce the risk of a, of, uh, uh, a condition than 64%. And the other thing is there's no treatment for Alzheimer's. There's no treatment to prevent Alzheimer's. Right. So in 2015, Pfizer discovered this data. And what did they do with it? I don't know. They buried it. They, they did, buried it. They didn't take advantage? No. And you want another reason? Sure. The drug is coming off patent. So by the time that they finished this billion-dollar study, yeah. and if it showed that their medicine was going to be one of the most famous, up there with insulin sure, and yeah. penicillin, yeah. they would not make any money on it. Okay, so... I mean, I understand. Basically, you you have the patent for a piece for medicine or for anything that you invent, right? And it runs out, and then people can create a generic, right? So, with these medicines that we take by mouth, these pills, they're yeah. called generics. Yeah. So there's some great drugs: atorvastatin, which is marketed as Lipitor, right. billion dollar, two, three billion dollars a year for Pfizer. Yeah. And now there's generic atorvastatin. So drop down to $100,000 a year. There are some people who demand to take brand name Lipitor as opposed to the generic. Sure. So they still market it. Sure. But it, the, a blockbuster drug is a billion dollar a year drug. Well, Enbrel was far and away a blockbuster drug. And I'm not going to quote how much they made on it because I don't know. But it was clearly over a billion dollars a year. So. In some ways, if you look at this situation, you can't blame them because the company would have to invest billions of dollars, literally, to do a study like this. Yeah. Because what they'd have to do is inject people who were at risk for Alzheimer's. And how do you know? Okay. There's no test that you are at risk for Alzheimer's. Yeah. And this is going to take a long time. Right. 
Right. And so they'd have to invest in all the research and the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, requires minutia of data. Like, like, did they get toenail fungus? Yes or no? And I'm exaggerating, but the problem yeah, is, yeah. is that by the time they would invest these billions of dollars, it'd be done. Their patent would be done and they wouldn't make any money off of it. Now, but there's an ethical issue nonetheless. They buried the data. And so why couldn't they have at least told the federal government who has very deep pockets? Yeah. And I can tell you right now, the federal government funds tens of billions of dollars of research. And they could have funded the study. In fact, I think there are some congressmen right now who, if they found out about it, would introduce bills tomorrow for the federal government to, to fund the study. And then if it worked, well, then fine, because the treatment wouldn't be $10,000 a month like blockbuster treatments are nowadays. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if it turned out to be true and Pfizer still had the patent on Enbro? Yeah. Can you imagine what they charge for that medicine? Yeah, okay. Yeah. They so charge a bit. Now it's going to be bought, and, and they're not called generics now. These medicines that you inject that are made out of you know, DNA modified protein, I mean, you know, DNA produced proteins, recombinant DNA, they're very expensive, um, but they're called biosimilars because you can never duplicate exactly the protein, I think. So anyway, so a biosimilar would come out and it wouldn't be dirt cheap. It wouldn't be pennies a dose. But can you imagine if we could prevent Alzheimer's 64% with an injection? Now, this, and here's the other thing. When you look at data like that they found, it's suggestive but not proof. So you look at all of the insurance claims for Alzheimer's, and those people who took Enbrel had 64% fewer insurance claims for Alzheimer's than somebody who wasn't on Enbrel. So it sure is suggestive. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you, there have been plenty of other suggestive studies like this that have turned out to flop. And you've probably seen this on TV and heard it on TV or yeah. watched it on TV where, you know, a company's stock has taken a dive because the study that's, that's of the right. drug they spent a billion dollars on turned out not to help. Now, this brings up the idea of, of studies. Mm -hmm. There's this study that came out about energy drinks. Yeah. And you said it's a terrible study. It's a terrible study. The, the, they showed that energy drinks, what, were harmful? Well, and see, this is the point. Okay, energy drinks are bad. I would bet that there have been some of these studies funded by Starbucks. Okay. I mean, come on. <laughs> because, because the alternative to the energy drink is right. what? Is the, a the, cup of coffee. A cup of coffee. Okay. okay, now the energy drinks are expensive. They're about as expensive yeah, they as are. a cup of coffee at Starbucks. But what I couldn't stand was yeah. sitting around sipping the Starbucks coffee, and it was bitter. And by the time that I had to go, <laughs> I only drank half of it, so I didn't get the caffeine that I wanted. Now, let me tell people about energy drinks, okay? Yeah. A, a shot of um, five-hour energy yeah. has about the same amount of caffeine as one cup of coffee. Now, here's the problem that... You see in these studies, you're talking about 10, 12, 14 energy drinks are harmful for you. Well, yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, 
I, I don't think we need to spend millions of dollars to, to stay that if you had 14 cups of coffee a day from Starbucks, not only would you be poor. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. I mean, Starbucks cup of coffee is $5. Uh, what's that? You'd uh, have $70 no, a but day. But you'd have no friends. Right. <laughs> other than other Plus, jagged up people. Yeah, yes. Coffee is a diuretic. You'd be in the bathroom 24 <laughs> 7. So the point I'm trying to make is that all you hear is that energy drinks are bad for you. Yeah. I can't tell you there are people who see me dousing a five-hour energy, and they're saying, Dr. Weefel, that'll kill you. And and how do you take the time to explain one cup of coffee is the same amount of caffeine as one five-hour energy? Yeah. So I have one in the morning when I'd normally have a cup oh, of do? coffee. Okay. I have one after lunch, and that's it. And, you know, that's two cups of coffee a day. If the kids now, unfortunately, <sighs> abuse yeah. it. Yeah, And so I think what they're trying to say, or maybe they're trying to tell these kids, is that don't take six at when you're out at the bar yeah. so that you can drink all the vodka you want. And they do do that. Yeah. Now, Red Bull had the same problem. Now, the difference between Red Bull and a five-hour energy, I, I can't stand trying to chug a whole Red Bull. Is it- okay, that's like 14 ounces. It's about yeah. the size of a Coke. Yeah. And it has the same amount of caffeine as in a five-hour energy. The thing I like about five-hour energy is it's about two ounces, and you just chug it, yeah, and you get the energy. Now, I have premature ventricular contraction, which are PDCs. Okay. It's like a muscle spasm of your eye, but it happens in your heart. So it, when I was a kid, I called them baby heart attacks because you can feel them. Oh, my. It's a skip beat and then a real strong beat afterwards, and you sort of hit yourself on the chest. Well, now I take a medicine for it. I take a beta blocker. And yeah. I can tell you right now, my two, sometimes three, uh, shots of fiber energy have never increased the frequency of my PVCs, which caffeine will do. So, yes, do not, if you are a millennial going out on the town and you're over 21 yeah. and you want to be able to drink as much as you want and still stay awake, uh-huh. don't take 10 five-hour energies. But do I think that it's safe to drink two or three a day, one a day. Absolutely. If you have one of those, it's like drinking a cup of coffee. If you have 10 of those, it's like drinking 10 cups of coffee. We are going to get with Skip from Raleigh. Hey, Skip. In just a moment. Oh, come on. You want to put him in? No, I'm kidding. Skip can wait. We're also going to talk about a really good feel-good story out of Africa where something that you may have taken here uh, was administered to thousands of kids yes. with miraculous results. Miraculous. Really, honestly, a good feel-good story. Also, your phone calls at 919-860-9783. This is Heart Health on WPTF. Now, back to Heart Health. Have a question for Dr. Weefold? Call 919-890-9783. And we are going to the Man Expo next weekend. Oh, yeah. This is going to be a good thing. Is that thing. like the Man Show? You it ever is, seen that show? Yeah. It's, what it is, yeah, expanded beyond what you would believe it. Yeah. It is a, um, a, well, imagine a home show. Like, you know, you go in and you look yeah. at the windows and whatever. Yeah. We're going to broadcast it, right from there. We're going to broadcast right from there. But instead of being a home show, it's a guy show. Everything that is there. 
Are we allowed is, to do that? Yes, this, we are. Is this politically correct? We're doing this. Lord have mercy. Uh, you know, what's funny is that the Man Expo actually is arranged and managed by two wonderful women yeah, but see, who, who put this on. This is the third year in a row. All right, um, I have an assignment for you yeah. before the Man Expo. Yeah, what's that? My brother, who tragically died in a car wreck about 30 years ago. Anyway, yes. his wife died too, but her father was Harvey Mansfield. Uh, professor of government at Harvard, very famous guy. He wrote a book called Manliness, and it talks about what that word means and how it shouldn't be a bad word for feminists. Right. Read that book. It's awesome. Manliness. Manliness. Very good. I'm going to do that. Um, We were talking about this story out of Africa. Yeah. What's that? Is Skip on the line? No, Skip Skip uh, heard me say, no, we're going to pick up with Skip in just a couple of minutes, and then he dropped off. Well, Skip skipped away. He can, he Skip, can call, call us back. We'd love to talk to you. Yeah, we'd love to talk to you. We just, sometimes you, you can't talk to him right then. Right. you got to take a well, break and then come what? back. He may have had 10 cups of coffee, and he's in the bathroom now. It could be it. <laughs> could be it. So, so the story out of Africa, with, yeah. and it's with a common antibiotic. Yeah. So everybody's had a Z-Pack. Right? Yeah. I mean, everybody goes to the doctor with the sniffles and they get a Z-Pack. Mm-hmm. And the American Academy of Pediatrics and the National Institutes of Health have said this is a bad thing. Overuse okay. of antibiotics. Most sniffles are caused by viruses. Well, in Africa, there is an extremely high rate of premature death of young people, young kids. Yeah, And the... Thing, there is an eye infection in Ethiopia called trachoma. Okay. And the interesting thing, and I'm, remember I told you I know everything? I don't yeah. know much about trachoma. Well, yeah. I know it, it gets your eye bad. Yeah. But anyway, it's, it's sensitive to azithromycin. So the problem, though, is that there aren't many doctors there who can see the kids when they have the eye infection and give them the antibiotic. Yeah. So they had this crazy idea that probably would never get funded today to do a study because, oh, my God, you're going to give people antibiotics without seeing them? Well, what they did is they gave them a dose of azithromycin twice a year. Okay. They just gave everybody, all these kids. They you just gave everybody. them azithromycin. Sick or not. And let me tell you, not only – this is a surprising thing. Not only did it prevent the eye infections – but it reduced the rate of death. I mean, these kids were living. 20% mortality reduction of yeah. all causes. Yeah. Not just the eye infection. And so it begs the question, why? I mean, are there chronic infections that cause chronic inflammation in the body that lead to horrible outcomes that makes your immune system yes. weaker because of this chronic inflammation? Well, one of the things known about azithromycin is that it reduces inflammation. In fact, you know, you get azithromycin with an earache and you may not have a bacterial infection. It may be viral, but you feel better because of the reduced amount of inflammation. Anyway, there was a huge outcry about this study because it goes against the cognoscenti who are the wise guys. The smarty guys, yeah. Yeah, the smarty pants who are trying to say that we're giving too many antibiotics. And that may be the case. I don't think it's a good idea to give every chicken a dose of antibiotics. Okay? Yeah, right. But what I've seen is the backlash now in medicine is that 
I'm being accused of giving too many antibiotics. And, and you know who's doing that is mm-hmm. Medicare. They keep a track of everybody's prescriptions now. And I give 20% more antibiotics than the average physician. So the reason is, is that the more antibiotics you give, apparently, there is a greater chance of resistance to this antibiotic. Bacteria are not as dumb as we think they are. And when you expose a bacteria to an antibiotic, they produce over time a mechanism to kill the antibiotic so they can keep going. So, for example, penicillin came out in the 20s and 30s. Um, the first person to get penicillin had a staph infection of the jaw. It was a young girl. Yeah. Well, it's Staphylococcus aureus. And so they didn't have enough penicillin for her to get a full treatment. Somebody said, I got an idea. So they gave her the penicillin, collected in her urine because you excrete most of it. You don't know that, do you? The most antibiotic that you get is you just sort of pee away. I'm not going to want the end of this story. They crystallized it. They did, Yeah, and purified it. Purified it. gave it it. back to her, and they cured her infection within three years of that. And let me tell you, it wasn't overuse of penicillin because they didn't, like I told you, they didn't even have much. Yeah. Staphylococcus became resistant to penicillin. That happened almost immediately. So regular old penicillin, you don't give it anymore. I don't know if you, I was young enough when, you know, you went big, 10,000 units shot in the rear end when you had a staph, I mean, a strep infection. Yeah. They don't do it anymore because strep is now resistant to penicillin in many cases. But anyway, so here's the criticism of this study is that we're going to produce superbugs. Well, they looked at that. And sure enough, there were certain antibacteria in these kids that had higher resistance to azithromycin. But guess what? Hmm. Didn't hurt them. And it didn't cause outbreaks of superbugs. Right. Now, I think this is an amazing story. And I think it's something that needs to be followed up. Now, they did it not only in Ethiopia, Mm -hmm. but Tanzania. 14% reduction in all-cause mortality. So there were 14% fewer deaths in getting azithromycin twice a year. And I've got Skip on the line. Skip, Skip, how are you? I'm doing well. Hey, welcome back. Yeah. Thank you, sir. I had to admit you, and um, I've only listened to the last few minutes. I'm leaving uh, the hospital where I work, but I wanted to thank you guys for talking a little bit about um, drugs um, and especially drug pricing. I can't tell you how many times I get asked by patients, hey, how come the hospital charges $100 for this pill and it costs 28 cents to make? And it's really helpful for guys like you publicly to say, well, the second pill costs 28 cents to make. The first pill costs a billion and a half or $2 billion. <laughs> so I really appreciate that's kind of good public service. Well, thank you. Very good. Skip, thanks. Mm-hmm. Watch out for traffic. Have a great day. All right. Take care of yourself. Well, that was sweet. Yeah. yeah. yeah no, it's I it's mean, nice to know we, we are having some sort of impact, you know. And, you know, this is education. This is This program is all about... I think stimulating people to start thinking about things that they don't normally think about. Right. You know, like, like this issue of who do your doctor, who does your doctor send you to and why, you know, I'm and worried. are we that. really overutilizing antibiotics? I Let me think... tell you, I see, I see patients coming to me all the time with yeah. chronic sinus infections and their doctors say you don't need an antibiotic. And I think some of the time it's because these statistics, like for example, me on the web, 
Yeah. It says that I'm an overuser of antibiotics. And that could make somebody oh, think well. that I'm a bad guy. And I think a lot of times now um, you see people doing things for the wrong reason. And that's so I won't look bad to right. the general public who doesn't know what I do. And I tell you, then it takes six antibiotics to get rid of the infection. And then my statistics get even worse. My my doctor wrote me a prescription for z even though I hadn't really gotten to, I had a cold, yeah. but I hadn't really gotten to the point of uh, right. you know, congestion in my yeah. chest. He said, don't even fill it until Hang it goes bad. It. When it goes bad, go ahead and, and fill and it. You and know two why days later, smart? I was You know why it. that's smart? Why? Well, you have diabetes. Yeah. So you're at higher risk for developing a bacterial infection. Let me give you an example. You have a viral infection, you get one, then what happens? If your body is strong enough, you can beat the virus. However, the virus can injure the lining of your lung mm-hmm. called the cilia. Yeah. And then what happens? We, have ba- we inhale bacteria every second. Yeah. Well, if you have no cilia, the bacteria are going to stick in there and be allowed to grow. So your doctor's smart. He's, he is smart. And the other thing it shows. He went to med school. It was the hard. Other, the other thing that yeah. shows is that he trusts you as a knowledgeable person to know when to take your antibiotic. And right? take the whole thing. And Right? Take well, the whole thing. let me tell you about that. I'm not so sure that's right. Really? Yeah, here's we what I not, think. We might not have enough time to uh, do How much that. we got? Oh, uh, About 30 mind. seconds. 30 seconds. All right. Let's just give me a, uh, a, just a second to shout out my medical school, Johns Hopkins. We were talking about this yeah. earlier off the air. Everything that I do and everything that I've learned how to learn comes from that institution. If you are ever really sick and you really think that you need the best, yeah. Johns Hopkins. We'll see you next week at the Man Expo. The proceeding was meant for information purposes only. Before taking any action on what was just discussed, consult your medical doctor.